Welcome to the Start, Scale, Succeed podcast with me, your host, Nicole Higgins, the Buy and Retail Coach, sharing tips, advice, and insight from entrepreneurs that have just launched to multi-million pound business owners. We will be discussing the challenges they faced, advice they would give, and the milestones they achieved and how they got there. Also joining me will be a broad range of experts with some tips and practical how-tos, episodes that will help your business grow and to enable you to live the life you crave. The types of experts that you'll hear from will be those that you will find beneficial as you start and scale your business, from branding and social media experts to mindset coaches and PR marketing. There will also be solo episodes from me discussing a variety of topics from sourcing to maximizing the profit in your business. If you are looking for UK manufacturers, you're starting your brand and you don't know, should I manufacture in the UK? Should I manufacture in the Far East? What do I need? Today is your episode. I'm joined by the fantastic Kate Hills, who is the champion of UK manufacturing from Make It British. Thank you very much, Kate, for joining me today. Oh, pleasure to be here, Nicole, because I'm a big fan of your podcast. I am yours as well. Now, before we go into it, let's talk a little bit about you and how you set up Make It British and why you set up Make It British. Okay, right. So a bit like you, my background is in buying. I'd worked in design and buying for 20, 25 years, having gone from having my own small business, my own small brand and a factory back in the early 90s, like a micro factory, to then working for brands like Burberry, who had factories in the UK, obviously you remember, and then Marks and Spencers. And everywhere that I started working, stopped working with the UK manufacturers. Like I was at Burberry when they closed down their factories. Then I went to Marks and Spencers when we stopped working with the UK factories. Everything started going overseas. And in my final role as a buyer, I was at Debenhams where we sourced nothing locally. And by me, and locally, I mean, we actually got rid of our last European supplier on my division when I was there. And I just thought, we're going to come to the point where it's not going to be that much cheaper to make stuff over the other side of the world. Or there may be, as we've just seen, like economic and global disruption that will mean we will want to have manufacturers closer to home. And who have we actually got left? And at that point, I started like kind of looking around to see which manufacturers we had. And it came at the same time as my mum dying. And it was a, and I just got, I just looked at what I was doing at my job at Devonham's as a buyer, as you probably did and thought, what the heck am I doing here? I'm spending half my time traveling all around the world and I want to do something to give back. So my actual plan when I set up Make It British back in, well, actually when I first had the idea for it in 20, 2008, I was going to set up a marketplace for products that were made in the UK. So Amazon, I think, had not that long been going, not in the high street, had been around for a couple of years. <laughs> of course, knowing nothing about selling online because all my all my role had been bricks and mortar pretty much at the time. I thought, how hard can it be to set up an online marketplace? <laughs> Anyway, to cut a long story short, I eventually realized that that was going to be a very costly project for which I didn't yeah. have the start of budget for. But in the time that I'd been re- researching doing that, and I'd given up my role at Debenhams, I was pregnant with my second child. I'd found all the most amazing factories in the UK that were still here. And I thought I want to do something to get the word out about these factories. So Make It British literally started as a blog in March 2011, when I just started writing about the factories that were still left in the UK and the brands that were making here, which back in 2011 was significantly less than we've got making here now. So my prediction about the fact that more people would want to start making locally again kind of came true over the last 12 years. Absolutely. I mean, and there's some fantastic manufacturing in the UK. And I've been, I was doing a similar project for someone and they were looking for UK manufacturers. And I was like, right, well, Kate's your first stop because her her list of 
of manufacturers and and your, your knowledge within that side of things as well is amazing. How have you seen it? You said that it's grown since 2011. Has the reason for that just more people looking for things or, you know, what do you think is the reason that it has grown then? It's a combination of things. I suppose the probably one of the main reasons, particularly for smaller businesses, is the kind of sustainability aspect. 2013, when the Rana Plaza disaster happened and people became so much more aware of what do we know about the factories that we are actually working with overseas? And if you're working with a factory in the UK, they're on your doorstep, you can go and visit them and the product's not flying across from the other side of the world. So that was one of the reasons. The other reasons I've found there are a lot more small businesses starting up and they want to make locally because the MO, the minimum order quantities are lower. They can have a good relationship with their manufacturers. It doesn't cost them a fortune to fly over the other side of the world to visit a factory. So that's another reason. And then like I'd predicted, buying products overseas and it's not as cheap as it used to be. Like you probably found the same. When I was working at Marks and Spencer's and we first started sourcing from China versus like some of the factories that we had in the UK or Europe, when they gave us the cost price, we literally thought they'd missed a zero off the end, <laughs> didn't we? Because the prices were unbelievably cheap, basically, compared to what we'd been paying from local factories. But that is getting closer and closer now. The difference in price is become is shrinking. And, you know, and then the, I suppose the other big impact, the big thing we had happen recently is Brexit. And so now even just bringing products into the UK is more tricky and actually having a manufacturer that's local gives you more flexibility, less delays, the shipping cost, you don't have the shipping costs. Yeah. Um, I mean, and we'll touch on Brexit in a minute. And I think because there's so many things that go into actually landing your product, if you're getting it from the Far East or even Europe, you know, there's, particularly with Brexit now, you know, there's so many things that people go in. So you're not looking at when people are getting their costs back, they can't compare. You're not comparing apples and apples. You have to work it through to see, right, what does it land for, essentially? Delivered to my door, what is that price and what is the difference? And like you said, you don't have to buy as much. And we'll talk about quantities again as well, but you don't have to buy as much if you're buying from the UK generally. So you've not got all of that cash tied up in stock of something that you might not know, particularly if you're starting out, that you don't know is going to work yet. Exactly. And actually, you know, I give people when they start working with me a kind of formula that almost that they can use to show them why it is considerably more profitable to make in the UK, especially when you're a small business, than it is to make big quantities overseas. Because it's not just the initial cost price, it's how much of that stock are you actually going to sell? Like if you've placed an order for a thousand pieces from China, because that's the minimum order quantity, that's a thousand customers you've got to find if you're a small business. And particularly if you're starting out, and a lot of businesses that we work with are small or just starting out, I think people don't really think of it in terms of customers, like a thousand products. That's got to sit around while you've got to find a way to sell that. And all the time that that product is not sold and just sitting there, like you said, that's cash, just your cash tied up and money you could actually be spending on other things to find the customers like marketing and sales. Yeah, or getting your website started if you've not already, you know, all that kind of thing. From UK manufacturing, are there products that you can't get made in the UK or that aren't, that are just, you know, not really feasible to get made in the UK? Yeah, I always say, so anything, for instance, that is labor intensive to make. So product that has, it's like I say, a lot of labor costs involved, something that's very detailed, like in terms of like a lot of businesses we work with make clothing, for instance, anything that's heavily beaded, that's got to be done by hand, leave that to India. So it's labor, it's things that are labor intensive and then things that we just don't have the machinery or the skills here for. Uh, women's high heeled shoes, for instance. Gina have got their own factory, but they don't make for anyone else. And apart from that, 
there's really, apart from a few individual solo shoemakers, there isn't women's shoe manufacturing on any scale that would make it viable to set up a business or run a business making women's high heel shoes in the UK, for instance. So yes, you can't make everything here. And some things there are less manufacturers for than others. And of course, that means they're in really high demand because there's so few of them, like ceramics from Stoke, for instance. Yeah. And I, and then it's like, they'll only want to, for those that are in high demand, they're only going to work with people that they know what they're talking about, know what they need, can make the decisions quick, and they're not faffing around. If you want to find a UK manufacturer, what are your five steps or top tips for that? Yeah. So I have a kind of whole formula that I walk people through, which is like my five steps to finding a UK manufacturer. Because the reason it kind of came about is because so many people were contacting me saying, hey, I want to find a manufacturer. And can you just give me the details of a manufacturer? And of course, they then approach the manufacturer who, like we've just said, is really busy and can't just take on any person. And that's almost the last thing that they need to do. And the manufacturers can sniff that out instantly if you're not ready. So the five things that we say that you need to do before you reach out to a manufacturer, first and foremost, you've got to have done your research. Everything with a product-based business starts with the customer. You need to know who your customer is and who your audience is. And manufacturers will kind of sense if you are just saying, oh, I'm just making women's wear and it's going to be for everyone from 18 to 55, they will literally laugh you out the door. So you need to know the market. You need to know who your customers are going to be. And you also need to know who the competitors are because you need to know what the quality level is going to be. You need to know what the pricing needs to be and be realistic about what your prices need to be. So that also means looking at other brands that are making in the UK and not trying to compare yourself to retailers on the high street and say, oh, I just want to match the prices that are in Zara, because you're never going to be able to do that. You don't have the buying power. You don't have the factories. And then the next step, which people think is a bit counterintuitive, but I always tell people to think about their costings and their cost price and their selling price before they start getting a price from a manufacturer. So rather than going to a manufacturer and saying, what's the cheapest price that you can do, starting from your selling price and knowing how much you're going to sell something for because you've researched the market and working backwards. And so that when you go to a manufacturer, you've got an idea in your head, which is a realistic idea, hopefully, of how much you want to pay for them to make that product. And then the third thing that people need to do, which is a bit different if you're making in the UK versus overseas, is knowing where you're sourcing your raw materials from. Like certainly from a clothing perspective, most of the manufacturers in the UK are still what's known as CMT, which is cut, make and trim, which means they only do the assembly production part. You need to source your raw materials, your trims, your labels, and they're not going to start work. And they're not able to start work until you've sourced all of that. So sourcing your raw materials is really important. If I can just ask Kate on that from a raw materials point of view, are you finding that most people are still are also getting them from the UK? Totally depends on what the material is. Like if we're talking fabrics, there are just some fabrics that we just don't make in the UK, sadly. And I hate to say it, but we are quite slow and behind on sustainable materials compared to a lot of the mills in Europe, particularly things like the kind of vegan type, you know, leather type fabrics. There's things starting up, but it's not yet on the scale. We just don't have, we have not had the investment in the industry, which is really sad to say. So if you're making a product in the UK and you want everything all of the components and the raw materials to come from the UK, you need to design the product and engineer it around what we're really good at here. So, you know, we're, we've got a fantastic wool industry, for instance. We've now got a cotton spinner in the UK and people that can knit and weave that cotton into fabric. We're a little bit short on things like dyers, 
for instance. Someone comes to me and say, oh, you know, I need a really technical fabric and it's, you know, it's very technical. It's recycled polyester and it, I would actually have to advise them to go to Europe to get that base cloth and then bring it in. That does extend your lead times. Another one of the advantages, obviously, in making the UK is the much shorter lead times. But if you've then got to wait for the fabric to come from overseas, that does decrease the amount of flexibility you have. Do you find UK manufacturers, if you went to a UK manufacturer and you said, this is the kind of thing that I want to do, I'll get the raw materials. Do you have somewhere you can recommend? Are they quite open in terms of sharing that their contacts or not? Is it something that, that the person who wants to start the brand would have to kind of look at themselves as well? Again, it all depends. So if it's a lot of the manufacturers in the UK are specialists, like particularly when it comes to clothing, you'll, you'll have, you know, man, and even they're in a certain area, like Birmingham has got a lot of outerwear manufacturers that are used to working in things like wax cotton. They will know who the wax cotton suppliers are. So in that case, yes, they can help you and point you in the right direction. The same with kind of Jersey in Leicester. So again, it depends. There's no no one thing kind of set in stone. But also, I always think if you're sourcing your own materials and trims, you have full transparency on what that fabric is, where it's come from, how it's been made, and also what the cost of it is. So compared to if you're buying full service, as it's known, and getting the whole package from the manufacturer, they can charge you whatever they like for all of those things. They can add on their commission, basically, for helping you source them. So it's either you do that work yourself and source it yourself and know what the true costs are, or you get the manufacturer to do it if they offer that service. But of course, they're going to charge for their time because like we all know sourcing the materials is one of the things that does take a lot of time. Yeah. So back to those steps then in terms of finding the UK master. I think we got to cost, did we? Where, where were we on? I think we were on like number three. So number four is having a really clear brief. that so you can't go to a manufacturer with an idea on the back of a fag packet and say, can you make this? I did have someone contact me recently and she was really furious because she'd found a manufacturer's details on her website. I sent them a photograph and what they sent back was nothing like what I was expecting. And you're like, oh gosh, well, did you have a tech pack? Yeah. So you don't have to have the most beautiful technical drawings ever, but you do need to have a proper brief to give the manufacturer. Like that's your contract with them. If you don't have those clear instructions, that example I've just given, you could get back what it, you know, that's going to be the manufacturer's interpretation that you're going to get back. Chances are it's not going to be what your interpretation was. And therefore you're going to have to get another sample made and another and sampling because it's a labor, you know, there's quite a lot of labor that goes into it, costs more than production. And if you're making in the UK, you do not want to get into samples made. I always use the phrase, which is a bit cheesy, a stitch in time saves nine. And when it comes to briefing manufacturers, that is definitely the case. It's worth putting the effort in to get that clear brief and that tech pack done to give to the manufacturers so that what you get back is much more likely to be what you actually want. And also that's your contract with them. From a sampling point of view, and I know it will depend, but if the cost of the garment is going to be £10, Mm the sample cost might be 30 Because it's usually sometimes it can be three times the amount. It could be more than that. As well, if you're if you're making something in the UK, you're probably not talking about a ten pound garment, a ten pound item anyway. You know what I mean? You're probably talking about something that's going to retail at about eighty, and then so your sample cost might be three times that. And then if you're asking, manufacturers, you have two ways of doing it. You've got those that will charge you a multiplier of what the final production cost will be, but more likely, I've seen recently, they'll charge an hourly rate. 
I know it sounds unbelievable. You probably understand this, Nicole, but some people listening to this might think not believe this, but it, it manufacturers usually lose money on the sampling side, even if they're charging you two, three times the production cost because they've got that initial discussions with you. They're running through the tech pack. They're going through it with their staff. Do we understand this correctly? They're picking up the phones, cross-checking that they understand what they're doing. They've got to reset the machines up probably. If it's garments, they've got to change the thread or, and they've got to cut the pattern potentially, you know, that's an investment for them to take on a new client because they probably aren't going to make any profit or any money on that sampling. And that is why you need to show to them and prove to them that you're a viable business to work with. You've done your research. You're not a flash in the pan. You're not going to be a one hit wonder that's going to do one collection and then just never be seen again because they want to see that it's a long-term partnership. Absolutely. And that sort of leads to later on when we talk about what you need ready and we've touched on it a bit in terms of what you need to have ready for when you go and see them. Any more steps that we've got with that? Well, the final one, then you are actually ready to reach out to them. But the big mistake people make here is sending a really generic email to every single manufacturer, not personalized, asking about costs in the very first email, which is like going up to someone at a like in a bar, isn't it? On a date and asking them, what's your salary or something as a potential like partner? Okay. There's a certain kind of no-nos, I think, in the emails, all the things that are going to get the manufacturers back up, that do not set yourself up for a long-term partnership with them. So that it's reaching out to them in the way that is personalized and shows that you've done your research on who they are. Because most manufacturers in the UK are specialists, don't reach out to a t-shirt manufacturer and tell them you want to make coats because you won't even get a reply because it will be obvious you've not done your research. And then part of that kind of location piece for step five is going to see them really important. Like if they're in the UK, even if you're in Cornwall and they're in Scotland, nowhere's that far away to jump on a train in the UK. And going to factories is one of my favorite things. I, you know, I miss it a lot because I don't get to know. But when you can see how something's made, how something's done, what the process is, well, what it's got, you see that and then you're like, oh, actually, yeah. So what I'm asking for isn't going to be able to happen. Or if I do it in this other way, this can ha- it can happen and you can have those conversations. But building the rapport and, you know, having that face-to-face conversation and you've made the effort to go to the factory, see how it's done. It will just speed up everything in that whole process anyway. And just you have just a better understanding and it it's a great thing to do. I love it. Miss it so much. Right. And also, you know, clients that we work with and then we send them to a factory that we know as well. So they get the kind of the VIP treatment when they turn up and they meet the whole family because so many UK manufacturers are family businesses and they, and they come back all excited. Like They say, oh yeah, I've met, you know, the owner, his wife, his son, they made me tea. And actually another top tip, if you really want to get on with a manufacturer on that first visit, take them some biscuits. It goes down really well. <laughs> Not that it's a bribe or anything, but it's a two-way thing. And I and that's where I think a lot of people fall down is they look at it as a kind of them and us situation with manufacturers. And, you know, oh, the manufacturer is just making this stuff for me and I'm in charge and I'm the boss. But actually, you've got to remember, they've got decades of experience, most of them, particularly the UK guys, in making this the product that you're looking to make listen to them yeah. listen to the people that that make the product as well if they say it's really expensive to do that particular detail or to make it in that way why would you not listen to them absolutely so we talked about in terms of what you might need to have ready so clear brief tech packs if you're getting them what other kind of things would a supplier 
manufacturer want from you or need from you when you're reaching out or when you start working with them? So yeah, it will definitely be knowing that you've got your raw materials sourced, labels and packaging. That's always such an afterthought. And you get businesses that say, I'm working with a manufacturer and um, I'm going to wait until I've got my production. Then I'm going to decide what my packaging is. And you're like, no, you need to decide that early on because particularly things like labels sewn into garments, they can't start the work until they've got the labels there because they're going to have to be sewn in at some point or attached to the garment on the production line. They don't want to stop and start things. So that's one of the things people miss out a lot is getting the labels and packaging sorted out. So again, tech pack you need to have ready, measurements if it's a garment, knowing what sizes you want is really important. And again, another big mistake I see people make, small businesses trying to do far too many sizes in one order when they first start out. That can take a huge amount of your budget. If you suddenly say, I'm going to go from a size, I want to be inclusive, which everyone does now, obviously, and I'm going to go from size six to size 20 or size 22. And if you then look at the cost of the stock you have to buy if you do all those sizes. So maybe then consider, are there some of these sizes that I could do just as a bespoke or as a made to order? Or if you really know your customer and start understanding your customer, do I even need the smaller sizes if my customer on average is on the larger size? So don't blanket think just because like the high street brands can afford to do 10 sizes because it's all sampling, fit, fitting that you've got to do, grading, all takes time and costs money. And I think it's like you might want to get to that stage eventually, but it's like, what are the things that you need to do or really should do starting out that yeah, you might want to go up to 26, 22, whatever it is later on. But like you say, you need to know it works first. You need to know the people like the product, like the brand and prove that it's viable before you start investing so much stock, money, time, doing those kind of other things as well. And what else would you say that they want from you? I think we've kind of covered it really. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like I say, the tech pack or some sort of, you know, you need to have a proper contract with a manufacturer, like something in writing it says exactly how you want the product made. And in, term, in terms of garments, you need to make sure that they have made a final pre-production sample. Some people call it pre-production. Some people call it gold seal. That is the final version exactly as it's supposed to look. And if you skip out that stage because the last one they made was kind of nearly right, but there was maybe an amendment here and there you can guarantee that the person that ends up making it in the factory makes it wrong. Like That was one of the, definitely one of the things that M&S was really particular about that I learned at M&S that was worth doing. Make sure you have that all important gold seal final sample and that the factory have got that as a reference when they're making it. Like even if, like say you are that person whose labels haven't arrived in time and so the labels weren't on the final pre-production sample, make sure that you've at least got that label tacked to the back of the garment in the factory on the pre-production sample so they don't forget it. So you've got a great, I always recommend post-it, safety pinned post-its to your garment to say, this is wrong, big red arrow, you know, do this instead. Yeah. Because they'll have that on the line or they'll have that comparing it to it when they're checking it, you know, to make sure it's everything is, is the way it should be. And are there any grants for people that want to manufacture in the UK or and export from the UK? Where can they find out or are about what grants are available or government support or are there any? Uh, yeah, I think you know the answer to this question with your last phrase there, don't you, Nicole? Are there any? Sadly, really thin on the ground right now. There are some grants that Innovate UK give out, but they always seem to go to the big guys rather than the little businesses. The best thing to do is contact your local enterprise partnership. So they're in each individual region 
they will be able to tell you what's available in your area because it's very much is region based. And it's really is the luck of the draw. Like if you're in London, there's pretty much nothing available. If you're somewhere like, I think we've had a client down in Hampshire, Dorset, that's had something for, it's usually more rather than here's some money to make some stock, for instance, is usually more kind of how to advance your digital selling ability, for example, the ability to sell internationally. So there was funding for creating websites and stuff like that. Actually, mm. recently, I, Cornwall is it, I think, or Devon, one of the, re- it really is like, depends where you are and what's available at the time. And you just need to be, get in touch with your local enterprise partnership, stay in touch with the, that person, get friendly with that person, and they will reach out and let you know when there's something available in your area. And so if people just Google local enterprise partnerships, yes. I think it's a central website that tells you where all the separate websites. It used to be called, I come back in the day when I started Make It British, it was all centrally located and was one hub. And then they decided it should all be managed regionally. And again, it always makes it really easy and helpful for people that are trying to find things and reach out to people. So Brexit has obviously had a massive impact on manufacturing, well, bringing things into the raw materials and that side of things as well. How have you seen Brexit impact the UK manufacturing? Like you said, the problem is raw materials, raw materials, fibres, yarns, you know, a lot of that stuff that we don't have locally here, even wool, because a lot of that comes from New Zealand. So prices have risen on raw materials and that has been had a big impact. And bringing raw materials in from Europe now means you've got to go through a lot of paperwork as well. So Yes, it's definitely like the cost of raw materials has gone up. We're seeing across the board, but also because of the cost of not just Brexit, but the cost of the energy prices rising and all manufacturing involves energy. And some areas, you know, some areas, like for instance, in ceramics, prices have gone up massively because it's, you know, it's so energy intensive. So yeah, Brexit has had had the impact that a lot of people have wanted to manufacture here now because of the agro, I suppose, as it were, for bringing things in from overseas. But costs across the board have been going up. And then trying to then sell into other regions, particularly Europe, and I'm sure you've found with other people and the clients that you've got, a lot of people just given up selling to Europe at the moment. Yeah. I mean, it's still a non, it's still quite muddy, isn't it? I think in terms of, and it's it's not very clear if you're trying to sell to Europe, I don't think. And maybe Department of International Trade has things that they can help you with. But I think whether it's governments or powers that be, find it, make it very difficult to find things out. Or, you know, it's just for someone that's starting out and even someone that's not starting out, the processes and the red tape is like, what do you actually, where is there that I can just go through and go, right, this is what I need to do. This is what I need to have in place. You know, there isn't that one stop. I mean, when you're exporting products overseas, everything has to have, you know, the category that your product is in. And when you look at those categories and the descriptions of the products, you think, well, is this written in the 1950s? It says things like corsets made from a knitted material or bikinis made, swimwear made from a crocheted fabric. And the people that create those documents have no understanding of the textile industry. Yeah. That, so it's just crazy. It's like, well, I can't even work out which one of my products are supposed to be. And then you ring the DTI if you can even get hold of someone and they have not got a clue. And the, and the doc- documents are massive. They're hundreds of pages. So, you know, that sort of paperwork and admin for small businesses, you know, for, especially if it's the business owner that's having to do that, is all the time they're spending faffing around doing that, they could be focusing on selling in another region, which is a lot what a lot of them are doing. 
Yeah. And we've covered quite a lot in terms of, you know, why you should be manufacturing in the UK. But let's kind of sum it up in terms of what's the UK versus Far East pros and cons. Oh, good question. UK versus. All right. Okay. So the pros then, obviously, I'm going to start with the pros. Shorter lead times. Great communication with your manufacturer. Not having to fly your product from the other side of the world. So a lower carbon footprint. The ability to go and visit the manufacturer so you can keep an eye on your quality. And actually the flexibility to not have to buy a huge amount of stock. So mm-hmm. the, the savings that you make in terms of you know cash flow, basically, because you're not investing. We, we've got a client that we're working with. She started, she was about to start a brand. She'd been working with through a third party agent who were sourcing everything for China for her small, small capsule collection of activewear and the cost of stock she was going to have to invest in was £35,000 for her initial order. And she we start, she started working with us, the same capsule collection. I think she'll probably invest no more than five to get the same collection off the ground. What's more, one of the items, I think she's starting with about four pieces. One of the items, the manufacturer that we found for her in the UK is actually cheaper than the price she was quoted from China. So I suppose in terms of the pros and cons, do not always assume that China is going to be cheaper. It's particularly if you're not out there visiting the factory and buying direct, but you're having to go through a middleman. And that is what a lot of people do. They search on Google for a UK manufacturer and what they really get on the first page of Google, aside from make it British, obviously, is companies who say, hey, yes, we are a UK manufacturer, but they're not really. They are a manufacturing agent based in the UK who will say, yes, we can manage all this for you. And you have a meeting with them in their big fancy office in London. And then, then you find out later down the line that actually their factories are partner factories that are overseas. And by that point, you've already spent quite a lot of money with them. You've gone quite a long way down the line and you're in that difficult situation. Do I carry on, even though I did originally intend to make in the UK? And next thing you know, you've got a bill for tens of thousands of pounds. Just on minimum order quantities and investment then, what's the the average? And I know it will be product dependent, but from a like per style quantity, what's the average that you've, say if we take that active wear example mm. that you gave, what was the minimum that they that she would have had to make? Do you know? It can be as low as 10 pieces. Stretch products usually is slightly like it's slightly higher, say 10 to 30 pieces. We've got manufacturers that will do 10 to 30 pieces pieces on something that's stretch. On wovens, we know manufacturers that can will be happy to do you one, two, three, four. Yes. Obviously, you pay accordingly. So yeah. if you are going to get a much smaller quantity done because it's less efficient for the manufacturer, it's going to be on a sliding scale and you'll pay more if you're ordering a smaller quantity. But you can get exceedingly low MOQs in the UK if you know the right manufacturers. Like you say, it is dependent on product. So something like knitwear, you've got to have the time to set up the machines. So generally the MOQs on knitwear are a bit higher unless you take a style that the knitwear manufacturer is already doing and you literally recolor it in a new yarn, which some brands do, which is quite clever and put like basically white label it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And any cons then? Oh, you're asking the wrong person. (laughs) The cons. Yeah, we don't have a huge amount of factories here. I mean, apparently someone said there's 4,000 garment manufacturers in the UK. I think a lot of that includes people that make their own products. And also a lot of the slightly dodgy businesses that pop up and then close again in Leicester, making for Boohoo. So we don't have tons of manufacturing here. I suppose the biggest con is we don't have 
factories with big capacity. So the biggest manufacturers in the UK probably have like 100 people. So compare that to China, where you might have been to somewhere that's got like... There'll be 100 people on one line. And there'll yeah, be yeah, yeah, exactly. Line, whatever, yeah. 90% of UK fashion and textile manufacturers employ less than 10 people. So they are all micro businesses. So that's why it works better for small businesses to manufacture in the UK than a lot of the big retailers. Like, I suppose when I first started Make It British, I really wanted to see like my old employers at M&S making in the UK. And I helped them. I did a consultancy project with them on their Best of British collection they did in 2013. But the problem is there's just not the factories here with the capacity to churn it out at the rate that someone like Marks and Spencers would need, not yet. And I said to Marks and Spencers at the time, they needed to invest in their own factory, but that fell on deaf ears, obviously. (laughs) What we are seeing that's quite interesting, I think it's worth noting, which I kind of touched on briefly there, is brands setting up their own manufacturing, which I think is really exciting. Like little micro factories, first, you know, starting out maybe by making it themselves, then employing someone else, then someone else. The next thing though, they've got their own micro factory. And actually in the reverse, We're seeing factories that are setting up their own brands. I think it's more difficult to do it around that way because I think manufacturers underestimate how much marketing and selling there is to do when you've got a brand. I think they look at other businesses, some of them that they are making for and think, hey, this having a brand thing, it's easy. We could just cut out the middleman and we'll have our own brand. And they see people like Private White, who are a factory in Manchester making outerwear, who then set up their own brand, Private White BC. What they don't see underneath is how much they've invested in marketing and how big their marketing team is in-house. Like You can't set up a website for a new brand and just expect people to come to it. And that's why yeah, it's all very well finding the manufacturer. But if you haven't thought about how you're going to market and sell the products, like if you've invested all your money in stock and you haven't saved some for marketing, selling, digital advertising, maybe you can't set up a website and just expect people to come to it. However beautiful and amazing the product is. So thank you very much, Kate, for all your insights and ideas and thoughts and tips. Can you let me know how people can work with you and where they find you? Okay. So they can find me at makeitbritish.co.uk and I'm Make It British on all the social media platforms. I'm Kate Hills on LinkedIn. I'm quite active on LinkedIn. So come over and follow me there. I work with businesses and the main way I work with businesses now is in our accelerator program. So if they want to find out more about that, go to makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash British Brand Accelerator. And I also like the five steps we mentioned earlier. I've got a little mini course that I have for that, which they can sign up for. It's usually, I think that it's a nominal fee to buy it. But if they've been listening to this podcast and they use the word Nicole, they will get it for free. So if they want my five steps course on how to work with a manufacturer, which is an extended version of what I talked through earlier, then just put in the word Nicole and it's yours. Ah, amazing. Thank you so much for that. And we'll put the links to everything in the show notes. Kate, thank you very much for joining me today. It was lovely to chat to you. Thank you, Nicole. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Start, Scale, Succeed. If you've enjoyed today, I would love for you to leave a review and I will see you again next week. If you'd like to hear more from me, your host, Nicole Higgins, you can follow me on Instagram at The Buying Retail Coach. Check out my website, www.thebuyingretailcoach.com or find me on LinkedIn. All the links are below in the show notes. And don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter, The Step, for lots of helpful tips and advice.